we are going to be in Ezra chapter 7 this morning. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you now for the opportunity to look into your word. We thank you that we have your word. What an amazing and wonderful gift it is that you have spoken to us and have given it to us in a way that we can understand it. And Lord, as we study, open our hearts and minds even more. Help us to get exactly what you're saying and help us to be just determined to apply it in our own hearts and lives. We ask this in your name. Amen. Please be seated. Remember a long time ago hearing a story about a chaplain in Vietnam and, you know, he would have regular services for those that were wherever the base was that he was on. And um, at one point, a young man had just arrived in country and um, showed up at the first, maybe it was after his first time that he was out in the country, he came back in. And uh, he looked at this young man as he was looking out at the audience, and he said he had a chain around his neck with a cross on it, a star of David, a little Buddha, and a couple of other things hanging there. <clears throat> and he said, tell me about this, uh, about this chain that you've got around your neck. He said, well, I believe. Well, what do you believe? I, I believe. And he said, okay, well, let me just, you know, you, Buddhism and Islam and Christianity and Judaism, that's four separate things that you're looking at there. And so if you're saying that you, you believe in Islam, you can't really say that you believe in Buddhism because they so contradict each other. And he looked at the guy right in the eyes. He said to the chaplain, sir, I can't afford to make anybody mad. So, that's supposed to be funny, anyway. <laughs> uh, true story, as far as I know. And um, it's interesting how many people think that, that you know, all of these different things was just pick one and you're okay. Well, that's just not what the Bible says at all. And as we look at this passage today, you'll see that the kings of Persia were very much polytheistic. They believed in all kinds of gods. And so as we see him seemingly see the king Artaxerxes or any of the others beginning to, uh, you know, send people back to Israel and send things for the temple, it's not an indication at all that they have actually believed in the God of Israel. Okay? They believed in them, but they also believed in the gods of Persia and some of the Greek and Roman gods. They believed in all of those things. And on one level, as he sends all of these things back to Jerusalem to build the temple and get everything going, they're basically saying, we can't afford to make anybody mad, so let's take care of this, so that the king and his sons will be prayed for and will be okay if we do this. That's the main thought of the kings of Persia as they're sending the people back to Israel. And you see it in several of the passages. Let's go ahead and put that uh, timeline up there. Uh, remember, there were three different points in history where people were exiled to Babylon. And then we get to the point now where they're starting to come back. And that first arrow on the left up there is where in chapter, first six chapters of Ezra, where Zerubbabel goes back and begins to build the temple and stops and then they build it again and finally they get the temple dedicated. All that takes place. That's the first return of a group of people. About 50,000 came in that group. Well, then there's a, a, a big gap afterwards between chapter 6 and chapter 7 of Ezra. There's 60 years more or less. Okay, And in those 60 years... All the stuff that happens in Esther takes place. And so that's where you get all the things happening in, in Persia and all the things that are taking place and, and how God marvelously intercedes in, in just some incredible ways 
in the book of Esther. And then you get to chapter 7 of Ezra, 60 years after the altar was built and the temple was built and dedicated. And now you have the second return of people from um, from Babylon or Persia, if you will. <clears throat> so now Ezra 7 again, it seems like, especially in the first 10 verses, it seems like it's very chronological. We did this and we went and we got there and it took this amount of time. Uh, but the reality is it really isn't. And you're going to see when we get to the end of the chapter, he's telling this part of the story, but then he's going to go back and tell the other part. And then chapter 8, we'll go back and start telling about the trip again. So that's kind of what's going on. He's trying to make some points that he wants to, to make, but at the same time, he, he's just get, laying it out and starting to get us involved with what's happening here. So verse 1, Ezra chapter 7, after these things, and that's after they had built the temple, after they had dedicated the temple, after all of that, um, <clears throat> During the reign of Artaxerxes, king of Persia, Ezra, the son of, and then you've got two or three verses there of a genealogy. Okay? The son of, the son of, the son of, the son of, and eventually it takes us so that as we trace it all down, we see that if you go from Ezra all the way back, you end up with Aaron, the first high priest. Okay, so he's a direct descendant of Aaron, the high priest of Israel. Okay, so that's, that's the first thing that we see there. And uh, then we see that he was versed, he was a good teacher, uh, he knew what he was what he was doing. Uh, he understood the word of God, understood how to apply it and to teach it, and he became a teacher. Verse six tells us this Ezra came up from Babylon. Up, he returned to Jerusalem. He was a teacher or a scribe, if you will. Uh, Jewish tradition, by the way, tells us that Ezra was the very first of all the scribes, in the sense that he set up that whole movement of scribes. So that when you get to the time of Jesus, you've got the Pharisees, the Sadducees and the scribes. And the scribes were many times the, the scholars. They were the ones that, that did the teaching. They were the ones that did the copying, making sure that God's Word was copied accurately and properly. And so Ezra's the guy that started all that. He's the one that began to gather people around, and they had the books that they had, and they, they started to work on trans, you know, making more copies of God's Word, but also learning it, understanding it, and um, being able to to study as they were supposed to. So so that's why Ezra is so important in that sense. Now, some historians also believe that Ezra was the first person to begin to bring all of the different parts of the Old Testament together, not necessarily in a book, because they didn't have books, but saying, okay, here's the group of scrolls that we have, the group of parchments. All of this is God's Word to us. Now, it wasn't the entire Old Testament, but a good, good portion of it. Not only that, it's thought that Ezra, Ezra actually wrote First and Second Chronicles, and then the Book of Ezra and Psalm 119, and uh, so it's very likely he was a, that kind of a scholar. Pull it all together, and in, in verse eight it says he arrived in Jerusalem in the fifth month, and in verse nine he had begun it on the first day of the first month. And really, what that means is that for four months they were traveling 900 miles with all of the people and the things that they were bringing back. Uh, and traveling in, in a very, very difficult way, if you can imagine, 900 miles taking four months. Part of that is you have to, you know, bring all the animals along that you're going to eat. Okay, so you've got bring your food with you, and that's you've got several herds of animals to do that with. So really, if you want to answer the who, what, when, where, who would have been the priests, Levite singers, temple servants, and Ezra, what? Well, they traveled to Jerusalem when, during the reign of Artaxerxes, 
And then where? Well, from Babylon to Jerusalem. And we just mentioned the distance and the time that that took. Verse 10 is a key verse here for us, because it tells us about Ezra. For Ezra had devoted himself to the study and the observance of the law of the Lord, and to teaching its decrees and laws. So really, he was all about, I want to take the Word of God that we have and communicate that, teach that. People need to know this stuff. They need to understand what God wants us to know. And so that was one of the things he was diligent about. He was devoted to that. And, and he wanted other people to be able to follow the Lord and obey his, Him because of, of all of that. Uh, and when, when he, <clears throat> we speak of, of the law, he probably means all of the Old Testament writings. And those times it would have been the law, Genesis through De- Deuteronomy, and then the prophets, which would have been Isaiah, Jeremiah, and all the minor prophets as well. And then the writings, which would have been Psalms, Proverbs, Job, and some other poetic kind of things. So that, that's how it broke down. And when he says teach the law, it's to try to teach all of the full counsel of God, not just the Ten Commandments. That was the keystone, it's where you started, but you wanted them to understand why. So let's go on into the implication. Verse 9 says, The gracious hand of God was on him. This was because Ezra had determined to study and obey the law of the Lord and to teach those decrees and regulations to the people of Israel. So he's a remarkable man. Uh, he, he, he's a man who... As we get further into the section of Ezra, you get the sense almost that he's he's very reserved. Maybe he is one of those real quiet, scholarly kinds, and yet now he's been thrust into a position of leadership. He's leading a caravan group of people all the way to, to Jerusalem, and then he's got some serious things he has to do once he gets there, and we'll look at those in just a minute. So just the... the um, the bullet points, if you will, Ezra devoted himself, and I love this, study. I want to see what it means. I want to understand what God is saying here. I want to, secondly, study it, but I want to obey it. I want to be controlled by God's Word. I want God's Word to be in me so much that that is what's regulating my behavior. That God's Word is helping me to follow God, and then to teach and help others so that they can too. So this is what he was trying to do. This is what he committed his life to. I was thinking about this week and I thought, what have I devoted my life to? What do we devote our lives to? We're going to say, what, what, what are, what's the big thing in your life that you're working on? Uh, it would be interesting to see what that answer is that we would give. Um, for some people, it might be a focus of, well, I've just got to make a living or I just want to get through the day. Uh, I want to finish college. I want to get married. I want to have kids. I want to just survive the week. I mean, there's all kinds of things that we may have going through our mind. And yet Ezra was saying, hey, and this was probably his whole life, once he began to understand what God's Word is about, devoted himself to the study, to obey, and then to teach other people so they could also learn to study and obey and teach others. We need to ask ourselves, what part does God's Word play in our daily lives? What what part does it play? Um, Are we studying, obeying, teaching? Or do we think, oh, no, that's for pastors, that's for missionaries, that's for really, really holy people that, you know, I'll never get there. Um, maybe it's for people in Bible college or seminary. But you're not going to find that in the, in the Scriptures. There's nothing that says only a certain group of people should be the ones that study and learn and obey. Now, 
please understand me. I'm not saying that everybody in, in the room should be getting up at 4.30 in the morning and having three hours worth of devotions. Uh, Martin Luther might have been able to pull that off, but I sure can't, you know. But, but stop and think about it. We're not talking about, I'm not trying to talk about imposing any kind of system on anyone. I want us just to be encouraged. This is what he said. I studied, I obeyed, and I taught other people to do the same thing. Now, it, it is interesting because sometimes we think in order to be able to study, it's going to take a huge amount of time, and I don't have that, so, so I'm not going to do it at all. When really, maybe what we ought to do is say, okay, Lord, I've got five or ten minutes. I'd like to maybe just listen to your word or listen to part of a sermon um, or maybe it's just read something. I, one of the things that when I was younger and struggling with all these things, I, I, I love the daily bread because I could just pick it up and for four or five minutes focus on that one page and say, okay, I'm taking something in which I want to take with me all day. And so that's, that's the encouragement. No matter, no matter what you're doing with, uh, you know, getting, spending time with the Lord, uh, there's no verse that's going to tell you you need to have a quiet time that lasts an hour or two. It doesn't work that way. But we are encouraged to be in the Word of God. And however that works out for you, that's great. I discovered a long time ago that for me, reading through the whole Bible in a year drove me crazy. I, I just, I mean, I would start and I'd be oh, gun ho, I'm going to read 10 chapters a day and I'd be reading and reading and reading and not getting anything out of it because for me to understand, I have to go a lot slower than I would need to in order to get through the whole Bible in a year. So I just start saying, you know what? I'm going to read from the Old Testament and read from the New Testament. I'm going to just take my time. Sometimes I'll only read three or four verses. I'm looking for a thought. Okay, what's the thought that I want to carry with me today? And then I'll spend a few minutes in prayer. Sometimes I don't have the chance to do that. But that's my desire, to be able to take 20, 30 minutes and just say, okay, Lord, this is, this is what's going on, and this is what I want to learn from you. But you know what? The reality is, whether we do that or not, we are all teachers. Uh, we are all people who somebody is looking at us and learning, whether it's our kids or our neighbors, co-workers, I think that's why Paul in Colossians put this, put it together this way. Let the Word of Christ dwell in you richly. You know, let the Word of God be something that, that's there and it's something that you either listen to or read or whatever, but it's something that you dwell in. Why? As you teach and admonish one another with all wisdom, you sing psalms, hymns, spiritual songs with gratitude in your hearts to God. There have been some times when I just looked at a couple of hymns and just read the words and let them touch me. There is no ABC 123 system that everybody must do in order to be able to follow the Lord. There isn't. Okay? But the Lord does challenge each of us to spend some time letting the Word of Christ dwell in us. Okay, so let me just challenge you, very low-key, not trying to lay a guilt trip on anybody at all, but just to kind of encourage us. Lord, let the Word of Christ dwell in you richly as you teach and admonish one another with all wisdom, as you sing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs with gratitude in your hearts to God. And whatever you do, in word or deed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. And so again, just that whole idea of as we are in the Word of God, we have that 
a little bit of time to do that. We study, we learn, we grow, we say, okay, this is my thought for today. And then we just step out and do the things that we normally need to do with in mind the thought that I'm supposed to let the Word of Christ dwell in me richly today so that I can be an encouragement and a challenge to others. You know, one of the reasons that we do baby dedications here is the parents will come to say, we'd like to do this. And, and you, you, if you've seen them, I, what I always do is ask several questions to the parents and they answer with, it's kind of a vow or a promise, if you will. Um, and then we ask this question of all the people in the church family. Will you, members of Open Door Bible Church, faithfully teach by your words and example and then whatever the child's name is, and all our other children, so that they may be guided to accept the gift of salvation and learn to live and walk openly as a disciple of Christ. And then we answer, we will. That's a promise that we're making to the couple and their child, to the church family, and we're making that statement in the presence of God. And so again, why do we do that? Because we understand that there's a whole lot more to living out God's Word than merely reading a verse, praying and walking away. It's how do I put feet to this? And how do I, how do I help other folks in the congregation with that? So every single day, we are teaching. Uh, if, if your neighbor is someone that you know and they know that you're a Christian, they're watching. And in the things you do, you're teaching. They're listening as you say things and how you treat your, your spouse or your kids. And the only way that we can do any of this in a way that honors God is to let the Word of Christ dwell in us richly, to be like Ezra, to study, obey, and then live those things out. Let's move on to the next set of verses here. In verses 11 to 26, we now have a letter that is being written by the king of Persia, Artaxerxes, and um, he writes it to Ezra, but it's thought that really this was the letter that maybe the people had sent and asked for a response to whether or not they could build the temple or whatever. But this letter was given to Ezra, so as he goes back to the governors and other people, you say, right here, here's the letter. See the signature? That's the king's signature. See the seal? That's the king's seal. This is what we're going to do. And he just gives them the letter, and they now understand that they are under the regulations of the king back in Persia. So anyway, <clears throat> verse um, 12, Artaxerxes, king of kings, to Ezra, the priest, teacher of the law of God of heaven, greetings. Now I decree that any of the Israelites, and then he gives that same decree, anybody that's here in Babylon, anywhere in, in, in the whole empire who wants to go back to Israel can go. Get up and go. And remember, they're still in exile Many of them have made their home there, and that's where their business is and whatever else. But he's making it very clear, you have the authority of the king to do this if they so choose. Um, so he made a royal decree and uh, makes it to all the Israelites if they want to go back. Now, the Artaxerxes letter, let's go ahead and put the bullet points up there real quick, <clears throat> is you know from verse 11 to verse 26, and this, this is what's in that as we go through it. Uh, he allowed the return of more exiles to Jerusalem and Judah. He provided gifts again for the temple. Um, and it was the king and his officials that did it. And then there were also other people who, who gave. And he allowed Ezra to take supplies. And he had a letter saying to the people in the trans-Euphrates, give this man anything he needs 
for the temple of God. So now he can travel all the way there, and the governors who collect the taxes in Trans-Euphrates have to then give from the royal, um, from the royal treasury what they need. Um, this is an interesting one. He forbid the taxation of the temple employees. So the priests, Levites, singers, gatekeepers, temple servants did not have to pay any of the taxes that the country had to pay. Nothing at all. They didn't have to do that at all. And then required Ezra to set up a whole judicial system to begin to put these things in place. So that's kind of what happens as we kind of jog through the rest of these verses together this morning. Anyway, he's saying to Ezra, you're sent by the king, and you're being sent by the king and his advisors with regard to the law of your God. So he's saying, yeah, yeah, this is your God that we're dealing with, and we're sending you to, to do that. Um, and we want you to check out and see how things are going in Jerusalem, see how the temple's doing and all the rest. So go, go check that all out. Um, and then he said, <clears throat> I want you to inquire about Judah and Jerusalem regarding the law of your God, and then listen to what it says then, which is in your hand. Okay? So the law of God, there may have been some of it there in Jerusalem, but now he's coming with the whole thing. Remember, we talked about how he may have been the first person to compile all the scrolls and parchments. And so the king is saying, you've got it. Now you need to take it and you need to, you need to practice what's there. Um, <clears throat> so then take the gifts of gold and silver, all of those things in verse 15 and verse 16. Uh, he says, I give you the permission to do this. Take all this stuff, Go. And then um, verse 17 gives him some more instructions about the things he should buy. <clears throat> and um, then he says in verse 19, uh, In accordance with the will of your God, deliver to the God of Jerusalem all the articles entrusted to you for worship in the temple of your God. So the temple's been completed. Now we're sending things back to help keep the temple running. That's kind of what all the money is being talked about in, in the second half of Ezra is being talked about to continue the, the workings of the temple, to sustain the, the priests and the Levites and all the rest. Um, and then verse 20, if you need anything else for the temple, uh, you know, people from the royal treasury and that part of the world will provide. Just take this letter to them. Verse 21, Now I, King Artaxerxes, order all the treasurers of trans-Euphrates to provide with diligence whatever Ezra the priest, a teacher of the law of the God of heaven, may ask of you. Pretty straightforward statement, isn't it? So you get, you know, he takes this letter to them and they start reading and they see that part. What are they going to say? No, they, they have to obey. There's no choice here. They have a position of power and authority in the trans-Euphrates area, but that doesn't mean they can disobey the king of the empire. And so they're going to have to willingly provide whatever Ezra needs. Now, he does put a limit on it. Verse 12, he says, up to, and then he gives the, the list of all the different amounts that he wants. I mean, up to 7,500 pounds of silver. That's a lot of silver. And then 500 bushels of wheat, gallons of wine, gallons of olive oil, unlimited salt. All of that had to do with the sacrificial system, and, and so all of this was being provided. Um, and anybody... <clears throat> Verse 23 again, whatever the God of heaven has prescribed, let it be done with diligence for the temple of the God of heaven. Why should there be wrath against the realm of the king and his sons? And there you get his motivation, don't you? 
I'm not saying I believe in this thing or even exclusively believe in this thing, but I'm not taking any chances. So do whatever's required. Keep that temple moving. Keep the sacrifices going so that the king, me, and all my sons and, and the empire will be okay. And that, that God won't be bothering us at all. That's really the direction that he's gone with all of this. Verse 24. This is an interesting one. This is the one that says that no priest, Levite, singer will have to pay any tribute of any kind. And, and we think, I've had people say, well, you know, that means that obviously he believed in God. Well, he did the same thing uh, for the temple of the Greek god Apollos. Anybody that worked in the temple, anything at all, they were exempt. So this was a policy that he had established and he used. Again, remember, he be, you know, as a good polytheist, believes in multiple gods. He doesn't want to mess with any of them. And so he gives special privilege to the priests and those that work in the temples of these places. In verse 25, You, Ezra, are to use the wisdom your God has given to you to appoint magistrates and judges who know your God's laws to govern all the people in the province west of the Euphrates. Teach the law to anyone who does not know it, And anyone who refuses to obey the law of your God and the law of the king. So the law of God is one law, and then you've got the law of the king, which is the Persian law, um, will be punished immediately. And he's got a list of things that that, uh, they would do for punishing. I found this quote really interesting because understand what he's saying here. I want you to to teach people the, the law of God. And they need to obey the law of God and the law of Persia. Okay? And so that's kind of what he's saying here. The quote puts it this way, By endorsing the Mosaic law as the social and religious authority throughout Judea, Artaxerxes conferred on it, the Mosaic law, the same civil power as the Persian law. Okay, He makes this statement in what he's telling everybody in Trans-Euphrates, everybody in Israel, you've got God's law, follow it and obey it. And he's saying to all the people who are Persians, you know what? That law is the same as our law, so obey. Do what it says. Um, The same as the power of the Persian law. He pronounced the law of your God and the law of the king as equal. So that's what his pronouncement was. Now, if there's anything in the Jewish or Hebrew law that said something and it was totally opposed to something in the Persian law, of course, the Hebrew people would say, no, we can't do that one. This is the law that we need to obey. Now, punishments mandated were death, banishment, confiscation of goods, or imprisonment. So he had a whole set of things that he could do if anybody was uh, disobeying the law of God or the law of the Persians. All right. Here we now shift again in verse 27, 28. We now have uh, praise, if you will. It's called sometimes uh, the doxology of Ezra or his song of praise. Um, King Artaxerxes gives him the letter and he formed Ezra, the authorities and duties. And now Ezra breaks forth in praise. Look what it says in verse 27. Praise be to the God, the God of our fathers, who has put into the king's heart to bring honor to the house of the Lord in Jerusalem in this way. So stop and think what he's saying here. He's saying, I want to praise the God of heaven, the God of our fathers, that the king of Persia, uh, God put this idea into his heart that he should send money and resources and send a bunch of us back 
to enforce and apply God's word. And so I just found that really fascinating. He's saying, I want to thank God for what he's done by giving this idea to the king of Persia. And so, verse 28, And who has extended his good favor to me before the king and his advisors and all the king's powerful officials? Because the hand of the Lord God my God was on me, I took courage and gathered leading men from Israel to go with me. So you see, verse 10, it seems like they've all arrived. You get here to verse 28, and he hasn't left yet. Okay? This is just the way that he's telling the story. And part of it was to get the whole letter of Artaxerxes in there. After that letter, then, this was his response to the letter as he begins to plan and take people on the trip. And next week we'll see all all of those preparations uh, go together. Now the letter Artaxerxes sends gives Ezra authority, and it gives him his duties. And Ezra's response was praise. Look at how awesome God is. Um, uh, let's just go ahead and put the, the PowerPoint um, bullets up there. So this is what's happened. Ezra has the genealogy of a priest. Okay, he goes all the way back to Aaron, so that's one thing. He has the approval of the king of Persia, who's saying, hey, here's the letter. Do whatever Ezra says that he needs. And then he has the approval of God, because if you go through the passage again and say, because the hand of the Lord was on him, several times it shows that God was using Ezra in a very powerful way. And so these three things are reality for Ezra. He's a priest in the order of Aaron. He's approved by the king of Persia and given authority and power as such. And then God's approval is on him and he keeps blessing him and showing him how to move forward. So let's go jump into the implication here then. Verse 27, Praise the Lord, the God of our fathers, who has put into the king's heart to bring honor to the house of the Lord in Jerusalem. So Ezra clearly sees what's going on here is that the king's heart is being moved by God. That's a really critical point. Ezra sees it, and he, he sees what God's doing. He knows that the sovereignty of God has come into play. Because if, even if Ezra had said, I want to go do this, it still would have had to go through all of these things, and the king of Persia would have had to say, yes, you can go do that. In this case, it seems like the king of Persia came along with the idea and said, hey, Ezra, we need you to go do these things. And Ezra says, that's because my God put it in his heart. And then he had to do it. Now, Proverbs 21.1 tells us the same thing, doesn't it? The king's heart is in the hand of the Lord. Like channels of water, he turns it wherever he wants. Now, the imagery behind this verse, if you've ever seen a field being irrigated, and I'm not, not talking about by all the fancy stuff we have today, but just by the water coming from the river, you see the channel gets dug, and all these channels alongside that go running on. The person is out there working it. The water comes up and then he opens something up and it diverts it down this channel here. When they've gotten all the water, then he closes that one and he moves to the next one and diverts the water there. And that's the imagery of God coming along and diverting the king to wherever he wants him to be. He's the one that moves. He's the one that shapes. And um, he's the one that's working in the king's heart to make these decisions. <clears throat> Now we need to remember in all of the areas of our own lives, uh, not just the king of Persia, but when we see the deterioration of our culture and we see the world in general 
the directions it's going. We see political parties doing things and saying awful things and leading into really dark places. When we see all of that, we tend to look at Proverbs 21.1 and say, well, God, you're not doing much with them, are you? The reality here becomes this. We don't know what God's doing. Many times we don't know what God's doing until well afterwards. And then we look back and we say, oh, yeah, I see it now. I see what he was doing. Uh, many times in our life and in our marriage, we've seen something very difficult. I had no idea how to get through it. We just kept going and praying. And then after we get done with everything that was happening, Carol and I could say, that's what God was doing. And we get it after the fact. And I think we need to remember that, yes, God stir, steers the heart of the king, but he doesn't going to steer it in the directions we want. Oh, yeah, I would love to see a born-again Christian as president and bring all kinds of reformation, if you will, to our nation. That may not be part of God's plan. It may be he's going to work in ways that we don't see. But the reality is, the Scripture makes it very clear, God is sovereign even over the hearts of unconverted pagan kings and people in authority. Remember, Frank and Marie Drown... um, when they were in Ecuador, had many things happen and, and did some amazing ministry. And then they retired in this area, and Frank and Marie were part of Open Door for a long time. Uh, Frank's now with the Lord. But he um, got here, and, and if you knew Frank, he wasn't going to be sitting still. Yeah, retirement didn't mean, okay, kick up on the back porch and rock. Uh, Frank decided he'd help build a radio station in Canada where there's a group of Indian nations nearby that weren't getting any kind of Christian teaching at all. And so he spearheaded this whole thing, got it all going. They got everything ready except for the tower. And they had to get permission for the tower, and the city council wouldn't give it. And, and Frank at one point simply said, they can't stop this because God's in it. And he just kept praying. People here at Open Door were praying. Next election, that whole city council was totally wiped out. None of them were left on the board. The new people that came on almost immediately said, go, build the tower. And, of course, the radio station was up and running. But why is that? Because there's two things that God does. Let's go ahead and put this up there. God will change the heart of the ruler or he'll change the ruler. Let me explain that. Nebuchadnezzar, God changed his heart, didn't he? And he became... Uh, a whole different kind of ruler than he was before. A few chapters later, you've got Belshazzar, and God confronts a member of the writing on the wall. And what happens with Belshazzar? Bad, different kingdom came in. He was done with. And so God changed the king, changed the ruler. And that's what happened in the case with Frank and Marie, too. God changed the rulers. These guys aren't going to listen. They aren't going to do what we want. Fine. We'll just change the rulers. Now, let me just say this. When it seems like God is not in anything, and and I'm sure you've had those days where you think, Lord, where are you? Why aren't you doing something about this? When it seems like either, you know, this is going on, and we say, how can the sovereign God allow this? We need to remember God either is sovereign or he's not. It's one or the other. And as we read through the scriptures, we see that God is in control of all these things. God is in control. And sometimes it's by permitting something that uh, that maybe leads to something else down the road, or sometimes it's the consequences of sin being allowed to do what they would normally do. We don't understand it all, but we do have to go back to what the scripture says 
And we need to go ahead and continue to pray for leaders and those in authority. And remember, God is sovereign, and He does know what He's doing. First Timothy 2 says this, First of all, I urge that requests, prayers, and intercessions, and thanks be offered on behalf of all people. So we're supposed to be doing these things, praying, giving requests, interceding for people, thanking God for people. And then he goes on to say, even for kings and all who are in authority. Okay, so we are supposed to be praying regularly for the kings and all those in authority. I grew up in a small church uh, when I, we finally came to the States. It was in western Michigan. And, and there was a man at the Wednesday night prayer meeting. Um, I used to have his prayer memorized because he prayed it very similarly every time. But he did. He prayed for the leaders and for the president and the Senate and the Congress. And he prayed for the governor. And he prayed. He would, every week he'd be praying for these things. And he always ended up by praying and for the cop that walks the beat. I thought that was really cool. Start with the president, and it's all of the authorities. We're supposed to pray for him. And the guy that's enforcing him on the street, too. Even for kings and all who are in authority, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life in all godliness and dignity. That's why we pray. So that we'll be able to continue to worship freely, continue to teach the things of God. Um, just one of the things here in this verse. First of all, and, and sometimes we miss this because we think it's okay. He's talking about four or five things and this is the first one. That's not how he's using the term. He's using the term in a way that says, this is the biggest, most important thing I can tell you right now. This is huge, Timothy. And then he goes into what's huge. What's huge is that we offer requests, prayers, intercessors, and thanks for all people, for kings and all those in the throne. That's what I want you to do. First of all, of the utmost importance, Timothy, pray. Pray for your leaders. Pray for the emperor in Rome. Pray for the governors in the different provinces. Timothy, teach the people to pray. And I think it's one of the challenges that we get as we're going through these verses. What do we take away from this? Um, I'm going to say this right up front. Please, I don't want anybody to take away from this any kind of pressure or manipulation because that's not at all the intent. So just kind of listen with that in mind. The book of Ezra mentions many times free will giving or free will offering. Now, a free will offering can be defined this way. is an offering freely given by choice in response to God's blessings or God's prompting. Okay? Just kind of a definition. But look what it says in verse 15. Take with you the silver and the gold that the king and his advisors have freely given to the God of Israel. And here's where you see that he believed that he was a local God whose dwelling is in Jerusalem. As well as the free will offerings of the people and the priests for the temple of their God in Jerusalem. So he's saying, listen, I, I, I want you to take all these 
free will offerings that are being given, and you need to take those to Jerusalem and use them. Now, we said before that all of the gifts that have been given earlier with Zerubbabel were for the building of the temple. These are now being given for the sustaining of the temple, to the continued use of the temple, so that it would continue to be taken care of and, and used with all the sacrifices that needed to be done. And so there's that whole idea of, of giving. And, and again, uh, one of the hardest things to do is to talk about giving without people thinking that you're saying, hey, uh, you know, we need some money here at the church. And so please don't hear that I'm saying the church needs anything at all, okay? Uh, God has always been supplying for the church here, and that's a wonderful thing. Um, but let me just say this. No Christian ministry can survive. No church can survive. No mission group can survive without the giving of God's people. All right, we'll start there. And, and as I was looking at that, I mean, our, if for us to function as a church, people volunteered time and money and resources to build what we have here. When Carol and I first came, this room was nothing. It was totally empty. We were meeting downstairs. That was a, that was a place we were meeting. And um, through some special giving, all of a sudden we were able to finish the building and move in up here. That's just one thing. But think of all the ways that we function as a church, the things that happen, the things that go forth, uh, the fact that we can now put things online so that people can watch us and, and, and go back and see what, what, what's been said and what's been taught. All of that has come in because people have been giving generously to the God's work. Um, so I just want to share some thoughts from the New Testament. Again, these are these are not... Uh, statements of this must be. I think they're statements of these are things you need to be praying through. And Paul's writing to the church in Corinth. And I do understand he's referring to a specific gift that he wants to take to the people in Jerusalem. I, I understand all that. I do think there are principles here, so I'm just go through quickly through these and, and then we'll end this morning. Um, 1 Corinthians 16.2 On the first day of the week, each one of you should set aside a sum of money in keeping with his income, saving it up so that when I come, no collections will have to be taken. Second Corinthians 9, 7. Each man should give what he has decided in his heart to give, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. Now, from there, there's some principles here. Now, again, I'm not saying, I'm just sharing some thoughts that come from those verses as well as the passage in, in Ezra. Principles for giving, one of them is our, excuse me, our giving should be regular. Our giving should be regular in keeping with how we're paid. And that, was, that time frame, basically the income and everything came weekly, and so people would weekly set aside some money. Nowadays, there are people who get paid every other week or once a month or even quarterly in some cases. So it's a regular giving based on what God's doing and how things are happening in your life. At one point in our ministry, Carol and I lived uh, basically on on offerings that people uh, would send to us, checks that people would send. And uh, it's just the way that our mission worked. It was basically what you get, you use. And if you don't get anything, well, I guess you're not going to do anything. And um, we, I mean, it was sometimes it was a big struggle because we didn't get one check that said, you know, this is what you can spend this month. We'd get $100. And a week and a half later, we'd get $50. And and so we, we, we for a while, we were trying to wait until we'd done all that had come in, paid all the bills, and then give to the Lord, and many times there was nothing left. I'm being very honest. We decided that from that point on, we needed to give from each check that came in a percentage so that we were giving. We just felt it was that important. 
Um, second point here, our giving should be based on how God has blessed us. Um, again, if the Lord blesses somebody greatly, he has the opportunity to give more, that's great. Um, I've had a number of people say to me, you know, Mark, we, we, we were loved, loved it when we could give whatever amount it was, but we're now on a fixed income and we can't afford to give more than, than this. That's good. That's okay. You, before the Lord, decide how much you should give from what you have. Um, we tried to give 10% once we started giving regularly. Um, and we didn't take that from Old Testament tithe law. We took it from from um, Abraham when he had rescued Lot and came back and he met Melchizedek, the priest of the high God, and he gave him 10% of everything. Nothing to do with the law at all. That was just our thought on, on where we would start. Um, three, again, from the verses, giving should always be our personal choice. Um, there's no way that anybody come to you and say, you know what, you need to give more, or you should give this. That's really between each individual family, each individual person and the Lord. And then the last one, this is my favorite. Um, our giving should be joyful. Now he says, not reluctantly. Not dragging your check to the offering box and pushing it in because you can barely get it there. That's not what he means. He says, not reluctantly, not under compulsion. If I don't do this, God's going to give me cancer. No, no, not for those reasons at all, but joyfully. And um, remember the first time I experienced this. Carol and I had just gotten married, and uh, we were youth pastors at a small church in western Michigan, and it was a bivocational position, so that meant we both worked full-time jobs and then worked for the church as well. And um, one day a friend of mine came over and he says, Mark, I, I have a sense that I need to give you this. And he gave me an envelope and it had $100 cash in it. And I thought, wow, um, thank you. And we talked a little bit and he left and Carol and I were talking about it. And we, we didn't feel comfortable just using that money. We, we just, you know, we didn't feel like this had been given to us for a special thing. And so we just set it aside. We didn't do anything with it. About two months later, a friend of mine who was also in ministry came, and he was sharing with me the news that he was having to leave the ministry because they could not maintain, uh, or they just weren't able to live uh, on what they were making in the ministry. He said, as a matter of fact, I just heard my wife said, we don't have any money for food. I thought, I know. I got the envelope, I gave it to him. That was the coolest thing in the world. It was like, wow, look at that. I got to help this guy, my friend. And and it just, that's joy. When that kind of thing happens for you, you go, that is so exciting. So when we give money to to um, the Bucinas, as they're trying to, to do the airplane remodel and trying to get all the new stuff in the airplanes, or as we give money to someone to get a computer, we give that money and we go, wow, we were able to help Martha Olongo, get a computer and a PowerPoint projector so that she could do much more with the ministry that she has. And so just those are some of the things that I think we need to keep in mind when we give. It's a personal thing. It's between us and God. And may it always be something that brings joy as we do it. Now, there have been times, I'm sure, you have had those too. Lord, I wish it could be more, but this is what I can give now. And we give what God has given us the opportunity to give. One of the themes that runs through the book of Ezra is the free will giving of God's people. And the fact that God is sovereign. Those things we've seen all the way through, coming through in chapter 7 of Ezra. Let's pray. Lord, thank you so much for your 
sovereignty. We thank you that you are in control of all things. We don't always understand how that works or even your decisions, but we know that you love us, care for us, and that you are sovereign over all things. So we commit ourselves to you in the name of our Lord Jesus. Amen.